Welcome to Mind Things, a podcast about how psychedelics will change your brain and change the world. My name is Trey, and I'm going to be talking to people in the psychedelic space. Entrepreneurs, writers, investors, researchers, and people who have had profound experiences using these substances. My guest today is Andrew D'Angelo, a cannabis industry consultant and activist. I wanted to have Andrew on the show because cannabis is a close cousin to psychedelics, and some people would even consider it a psychedelic. There are a lot of parallels between the two industries, with cannabis being about 10 or 15 years ahead of psychedelics. And that's where Andrew comes in. He spent over 35 years being an activist for cannabis and has been there every step of the way in helping laws get passed in California, both for medical use back in the 90s and more recently for recreational adult use just a few years ago. He opened one of the first dispensaries in Oakland almost 15 years ago with his brother and eventually took that company public. He's also started a nonprofit called The Last Prisoner Project in which the organization works to release people from prison for cannabis offenses. He recently helped to release someone who had spent nearly 30 years in prison. These days, Andrew spends his time as a consultant and a storyteller working to help other companies and continue to drive political change. We dive into all these things in our interview and a whole lot more. Here now is my conversation with Andrew D'Angelo. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Trey. Nice to be with you today. Yeah, so you have an amazing story that I'm sure we're going to get into. You've been an advocate for cannabis since you were 15 for over 35 years now. So you've seen the evolution of cannabis legally, economically, and how public perception has changed. And there's obviously a long way to go still for cannabis in the United States, but there's been tremendous change in the past decade. So I'm wondering, do you recall a particular moment or event where you started to feel validation and satisfaction about everything that you've been spending your life's work on? Well, that's a big question. I'll try to answer in because there's been more than one, but the, the first big milestone that validated everything we're, we were doing is when we first legalized medical cannabis in California in 1996. I had already been working with cannabis for over a decade at that point, my brother, a couple decades, my older brother, Steve, and we worked with Dennis Prone and the activists in San Francisco and California to get that done. And that's when we knew we were really onto something. Up until that point, we had not been able to penetrate the mainstream community with cannabis and our message about legalization and that it could be a good thing in in the world and society, not a bad thing. And people just didn't want to hear it. But once we started touching people in the hearts, putting patient stories, people with HIV AIDS on camera and telling their stories, not just the activist stories, but the patient stories, that's when we started to realize that you had to You had to convince people through the heart, not through the mind. So that was the first big one. But then we didn't get another legalization in another state for quite some time, about 10 years or, you know, we managed to pass medical in Washington, DC in 1998, a couple of years after that was very validating. But then we had a, a terrible hassle with the federal government, which basically did not fund that law being implemented. So we were validated with medical in California, then it took us a while to get the next validation. I'd say the next big validation for me came when Colorado and 
Washington passed for adult use. And then we, then the whole industry, what we call quote unquote, the cannabis industry, which certainly has some dark aspects to it, but I think overall is a positive thing for all of us. That's when it was really able to get going. And, and once the industry got going, the validation became more and more because we were able to demonstrate that cannabis could be profitable for entrepreneurs and for communities, and that we can bring this compound out of the shadows and into the light and do on balance, do something very good for the world and for our communities and for our country, while also minimizing the harms that that inevitably come with any change that like this that you make. So, every the last election was hugely validating with places like South Dakota and Mississippi, very conservative red mm-hmm. states that legalized medical and adult use in the in, in the case of South Dakota. Now. There's a whole bunch of people filing lawsuits against those measures now. And, try, and, and so those states and those communities and citizens are going to have you know a healthy debate about this and decide what's best for them. And and so this this is even more validation for us. And then, of course, we see what's happening with cannabis globally and, and Mexico just legalized or it's almost all the way home to legalization. Oh, really? In Mexico, yeah. What was the the timing in California after medical use was legalized in 96? When was it opened up for adult use? We didn't pass adult use till 2016. Wow. And what, so what was happening during that 20 year time period? I guess like on the activist front, like what we were you spending failed. your time in, on? In 2010, we had a adult, you met, uh, an adult use statewide ballot measure called Prop 19 that failed. So we were trying to get adult use done. Um, our big mistake with Proposition 19 was we ran it on an off-year election. If we had run Prop 19 in 2012 instead of 2010, we would have won because we had the Obama turnout for, for his re-election in 2012. Mm-hmm. And you always have a much bigger turnout of progressive people in a national presidential election than you do in an off-year election. But the activists were so eager we were biting at the bit and we thought we had it and we were wrong. We didn't have it. And our adversaries beat us at the ballot box. And that was a crushing blow because the federal government came in after that under the Obama Biden administration. I'm, I'm not so proud to say, and they closed a whole bunch of dispensaries. They raided people. They shut the mm. industry down all over the, not just in the in California, but in Colorado, other places. And it was a real disaster. In California, it happened in particular because we lost an election. And when you lose, it emboldens law enforcement. And, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happened. So part of the problem in California, frankly, was us activists didn't do a good enough job. It's a hard state to do a good job in. It's a gigantic state. California is like a little country. Colorado mm-hmm. only has 3 million people. You got more people than that in San Diego. So it's just a very hard to govern, as we've seen. Um, And so it's really hard for activists that are trying to push the giant boulder of legalization up the mountain uh, to always make the best decisions and and have the right strategy. So we learned a lot from it and we got it done in, in 2016, not without having to make some brutally tough compromises that is plaguing 
the adult use industry today and really harming the cannabis community in many ways. So we have to, now we have to fix it. So California's kind of been, it was the poster child of how to do everything with the medical program. Mm -hmm. It's now become the poster child of everything to do wrong in the adult use uh, program. And so what are some examples of that? You mentioned having to make some compromises. What's not being done well right now? In California in particular, but these mistakes have been repeated all across the country. There's two primary ones, overtaxation. So when you overtax cannabis, whether it be at the state level with excise taxes or at the local level, you embolden what I call the legacy market. Some people call it the underground market. Some people call it the illicit market. You embolden that market because their prices are lower and, and cannabis is already not a cheap thing to obtain, not as cheap as many other intoxicants, both legal and not. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so that's number one. Yeah, you can't overtax it. And we're seeing that everywhere. Every, everybody's overtaxing it because greed is the, unfortunately, until this plant medicine renaissance happens more widely, greed is the organizing principle right now. And so even at a municipal level or a community level, people are, are greedy and they overtax it. The second problem is you give local people control over licensing. And that's a, a huge problem because what happens is the local people ban it. And even if the, the local community voted for the ballot initiative in California 64 and other places, it's called something else, the local people will ban it. And in California, we've got 60% of the state banned, Michigan 75%, Colorado still 40 or 50% banned. Huh. And this is crazy and it's a terrible mistake. And, and what happens is activists are around the table with the people who get laws and initiatives and ballot measures and stuff like that done. Uh And uh, they say, if you don't give local control, you'll lose because the local municipalities will come out against it and the league of city and counties will come out against it and all the municipal trade associations and municipal groups and all the church groups and this and that, everybody will come out against it. If you don't give it local control, you have to give local control, you're gonna lose. So activists like us are like, oh, wow, we don't want to lose. Okay, we'll give local control and then we'll be good activists and we'll engage the local people and we'll get it done there. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. That was a naive attitude. And what we need to be doing is is negotiating better in the first place around those tables and saying, no, Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to do Oklahoma did. Oklahoma, no local control. You had to give license. You couldn't be. And so now Oklahoma has the wonderful problem of there's too many dispensaries and there's too many small businesses. I think that's a much better problem to have than not enough. Uh, So if you're going to have one problem or the other, right, it's it's good to try try to strike a balance between those things. I think it's good, but, but, but that's proven hard to do when you limit licensing. Things get corrupt very quickly. Um, But those are the two primary mistakes. Then there's a whole bunch of little mistakes. We have not thought about people of color enough. We have not built that in the frameworks. We're starting to now. Should have been done from the beginning. A lot more public money needs to go into making sure the supply chain is safe. Why our industry has to pay for its own lab testing when, you know, the meat industry doesn't. I don't know. It seems weird. Uh, why have an FDA? So there's a lot of things I think that obviously can be improved, uh, but you have to win the war. And the war was getting legalization done 
now we have to get good at winning all these battles. And we're just, we haven't learned how to do that really well yet. We're fragmented. We're not well organized. There's a lot of competing interests. It's, it's a state by state thing right now. State by state. And it's political. It's, it's about being a political operative now, not a political activist, not an agitator, mm -hmm. but an inside, inside player because it's legal now. So now it's about how do you make it legal? How do you do it? Who gets to benefit? There will be winners and losers. How do we do that? And the how part of it, even we are struggling to understand and, and get done. So that's just the work ahead of us. So it's, it's a, unfortunately the adversaries of cannabis have been political operatives for a long time, whether that be law enforcement, whether that be any number of other groups, local municipal groups or what have you. Uh, and they've learned how to do it really good. And, and so we get outmaneuvered a lot, but it's okay. We're learning and, and growing all the time. And good public policy is something we all have to fight for in, in a democracy. And we all have to show up. We all have to do the work. And if enough of us do it, we'll have good policy. If enough of us don't, we won't. So talk a little bit about the mechanics of the activism. Is it primarily education? Is it lobbying in some sense? What's the actual sort of meat and bones of what you're doing to push a lot of these initiatives and changes through? That's a great question. I, I, at the, underneath all the mechanics of activism is storytelling. Story, storytelling is the glue that holds activism together. If we're telling the right stories with the right faces, that's how we enact change because people don't change from the outside in, they change from the inside out. And, and so we have that, that ultimately is what we have to do. And we can't put ourselves, we can't be the stars of our own story. And that's a, a, a mistake activists make a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because we're already fighting the good fight and we're already marginalized. And most of us are broke, traumatized people. And it's like, it's our thing that we do. So it's hard not to draw attention to it and yourself at the same time. But what we really need to be doing is drawing attention to uh, the plant and the patients and people in the community putting those faces out there and their stories out there when we started talking about kids with epilepsy and cannabis look at all the progress we made and when we started telling the stories of those children and putting them in the story then we riley's law in delaware is named after a child that had a cancerous tumor that that cannabis helped um and her family got that law passed with that that story's told told in the, the documentary CBD Nation that I appear in and produced. And that's what we have to do. Then we have to be good activists. And that just means wherever you're local or state, wherever you happen to live, there's a process in which you change laws or enact better laws that have already been changed. And whatever that process is, you have to get good at it. And it has to be energetic and, and well-funded. And those mechanics, those I'd call them operations, activist operations, that's the, the really difficult part because we're all under-resourced mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a lot to do. But a lot of the activism in cannabis came from the industry. The, the, the reason the city of Oakland was the first municipality to license cannabis is because they had a problem with every cannabis person in the world opening up a dispensary or a grow in Oakland, and they had no framework or mechanisms to control it. And people were starting house fires and 
neighbors were complaining and the thing was getting overrun and they realized, okay, we got to be smarter about this. And it was activists that were knocking on their door going, hey, you need to do something about this. Um, you can't just let this go because it's being a front for some criminal activity. Mm -hmm. um, because the, the medical framework at that time was very gray and very broad, deliberately. Sure. Um, but it, it got taken advantage of um, by some criminal elements. So it, the activists and then the industry funded it. You know, when Harborside went for a license in Oakland way back when in 0405, we gave a grant to the Fox Theater Renovation Foundation that was renovating the Fox Theater owned by the city of Oakland. So that in our application, we could say we did that, you know. And, and Harborside, so listeners know, is the dispensary that you started with your brother. Is that right? Yes, Harborside. Yeah, thank you for saying. Is a, we have a five or six dispensaries now in California and um, growing all the time. And we've been around uh, since 06. And we had a flagship store in Oakland. is known as the gold standard for cannabis retail when, when we started way back in 06. Yes. And, and, and that all over where, unfortunately, with the local people having so much control, they extort the company sometimes. But generally speaking, if, you know, the industry, particularly in the early days of any market, any legal market, has to help fund the activism and hopefully funds a lot of the activism in the mid and longer term stages should be fully funded by the industry. And our industry has a real opportunity to be a different kind of industry. It's not often you get to give birth to a whole new industry and we don't have to make the same mistakes with systematic racism in our industry or systematic inequality in our industry or systematic whatever the bad thing is, um, environmental destruction in our industry, all these things that are plaguing all these other industries, um, we can do something different from the very beginning and, and try to, because now all those other industries have to fix it and, and it's gonna be really expensive and hard for them to fix it. And, and it will be very expensive and hard for us to fix it too. So we should do it right uh, from, the get-go. So that's the promise of all of this. And do you feel like a lot of those things are being done right now? I mean, it, it's early, but it is, it has been 10, 15 years, like you mentioned, you know, for um, many people I, in the industry. I think we're just starting to, it's come, it goes in waves, right? So the last, since Colorado, really since California flipped to adult use, there's been a lot of investor exuberance in the cannabis industry. And there's been a lot of um, money invested and scale that's been created. And, and that's been done without enough attention to doing it right, in my opinion. I think we're starting with the pandemic and, and the racial justice crisis that emerged on everybody's screens last spring. We're starting to see a lot more commitment from the industry. I have a little nonprofit called Last Prisoner Project, and we were on the verge of bankruptcy until 420, and then all that activity happened, and, and now, you know, our budget's pretty healthy. And I think you're seeing that with some of the other social justice and social equity groups. I just got off the phone with a company that's the parent company of Jay-Z and what he's doing with his $10 million fund, social equity fund. And they're also going to keep funding that fund with 2% of their net profits from the parent company. But that's the kind of thing that's starting to happen out there now. And I want to see more of that.
um, happening because that's ultimately going to be good business. So tell me about the last prisoner project. The last prisoner project is, a, is one of many social justice groups. Uh, there's, oh, I could go on and on cage free cannabis, the Weldon project can do expungement. There's a lot of groups working on either expunging records of cannabis prisoners to actually our mission at LPP is to get cannabis prisoners out of prison, their records expunge and then, and, and that their reintegration into society re-entry into society. Those are the only three things we do. We don't do any other drug crimes. We just do cannabis and we try to stay very focused on, on that constituency. And we're a nonprofit organization and I'm very happy, thrilled to report that just last week we got Michael Thompson out of prison. He had been serving either 26 or 29 years in Michigan. He was the longest serving nonviolent cannabis prisoner in Michigan and our last prisoner project and a whole bunch of other incredible human beings and organizations, lawyers, activists, uh, worked to free him and he's free. And not only is he free, Sean King, uh, put up a, a GoFundMe and enough money was raised in nine hours to buy him a house. Wow. Wow. That's buy great. him a house. Okay. And a car. And so, this is what our community is starting to do. We, we've had this connection at the grassroots level. We're starting to see it at the corporate level. I'm going to keep advocating for it on programs like this and putting as much pressure on corporate, quote unquote, corporate cannabis to be good stewards of the plant and to, to live by the values the plant teaches us and to give back and to, to do this work. And if we all do that, we will have an industry that's unique, that's never been done before, that people can point to as a model and say, now there's an industry that's got 40, 50, 60% ownership, people of color. There's an, right now we only have 4%. So we have some work to do everybody, but there's an industry that's sustainable. There's an industry that's got good jobs and good wages and cares about their employees and cares about the community. And if we all do that and 20, 30 years from now, we have those badges of honor that we can wear, won't that feel good? Doesn't mm -hmm. that feel as good as becoming a billionaire? It must, it, it must, if it doesn't, then Something's wrong. So this Michael Thompson case, take me through that. How did you actually get him out of prison? The only way you can get someone like Michael out, who's already exhausted all of his court appearances and appeals is with commutation or a pardon from the governor. Hmm. Uh, in, in his case, the governor, sometimes the president. I think he was a state case, not a Fed case. So in this, his case, it was the governor. So lawyers have to create petitions and it goes through a process through courts and probate courts and probation boards um, uh, rule on all the different petitions you make and briefs you file. Mm -hmm. And then it, if they rule in your favor, it keeps going through the process, just like an appeals case would or any court case would, but it's a little bit different. It's not a criminal court. It's, it's, a pro, it's in a little bit different part of the court system. But, and, and so you do it that way. And then eventually what happens is 
you're done and the petition goes to the governor's desk and it sits there. <laughs> and in Michael's yeah. case, it sat there for months mm -hmm. because the governor of Michigan was in the running to be vice president. And our speculation, we don't know this, of course, but our speculation is she delayed and the pro, pro parole board that was handling all of this delayed for that because she was under that consideration. She didn't want to have something controversial happen, you know, along the way of that. But shortly after the election, things got a little bit better with it. And, and once 20,000 people wrote letters on his behalf at the, in the community, yeah, and gave money and did media and, uh, and all the rest of it. So all of those efforts together created a storm of justice, if you will, that overtook the system because there was just this man and just for three pounds of weed, okay, and some antique gun he had in his house when they busted him. He's doing 29 years when in Michigan, the dispensaries are, are selling three pounds of weed every 10 minutes or something like that. And you start, it, it becomes so absurd that even the people in power have to acknowledge that, that something must be done. So that's how commutation works and it's a long arduous process the trump administration give them credit commuted 12 cannabis prisoners lifers some of them um at the the very last day or two of his administration trump administration so we're hoping that the biden administration now is faced with a landscape where they really have no choice but to do much better and if that's correct then I hope we'll have a really good next year and get a lot more folks out. There are people right now that are just rotting away in prison for weed and in all of our names, in all of our names. And it's, we, it's, we have talk about more obligations. It's hard work to do, but when you get somebody out like Michael and you see the community come and buy him a house, so he can be comfortable after 29 years of serving time for all of us, really. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Uh, that's, that makes the work very rewarding. So if people want to help, lastprisonerproject.org, get involved, slash get involved, I think, is the thing. And we have a bunch of different programs. You can just start being a pen pal of a prisoner, and we'll show you how to do that step by step. And uh, that's a really rewarding thing to do, too, if you, if you maybe don't want to give money or can't give money, but you want to. There's nothing like getting mail when you're locked up. It's, it's such a helpful thing. So every, obviously every man or woman saved in this way is a huge win, right? Certainly for them individually, it's their whole life. And when you talk about all the effort that goes into getting Michael Thompson out or the fact that 10 or 12 people were just pardoned and hopefully there's more in the coming years, it still absolutely pales in comparison to the number of people that are incarcerated for cannabis, right? 30 or 40,000 people in the US alone, I think. Is that right? That's our best guess. It's a very hard thing to count. And we're actually working with a group to try to improve the count. But yes, about 40,000. So right. what do you, I guess, longer term, what do you imagine could happen? Is it once all 50 states have legalized marijuana potentially in the years following that, there might be some way of doing sort of mass release of people like this or what's your dream in that regard yeah there is a way of doing it so that it is mass and it is all at once but you have to build it into the laws and the frameworks of legalization like the more act 
for your listeners, the Moore Act um, is a federal law that has passed the House of Representatives but has not passed the Senate. So it's not a law yet, but it, it would basically decriminalize cannabis, remove it from the Controlled Substances Act, and also one of its provisions is it would immediately expunge all the records of all nonviolent federal cannabis people with records. There's going to be some restrictions on that, how you define nonviolent and so forth. But but yeah, that's and and that's the, the best way to do it because then groups like Last Prisoner Project don't have to file one expungement petition at a time. At a time, yeah. And same thing with getting people out of prison. If if we have a brutal criminal punishment system in this country. It's very brutal. Our, our prisons are dangerous, borderline concentration camps. They're torture chambers. They, it really is a problem, an issue, and it, it's a hard place to go when you really haven't done anything wrong. So one of the things we're starting at Last Prisoner Project is the 501c4, which is the policy arm, and we're going to try to actually do more policy work to get this done when legalization happens in each state or at the federal level that we can get these blanket expungement or blanket releases all at once because that that's really the the most just and fair thing to do is spending even one day in prison like i mentioned is super super hard so why should it take two years to get somebody out if the, if the thing's already baked or three years or four years it's either legal or it's not Okay. And if it's legal, then it's legal. And, and society has to cop to being wrong. And, and you know, cannabis people have, are in a long line of other people. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, some serious wrongs have been done and, and justice requires it. So the MORE Act that you mentioned, you said that it has previously passed in the House, but not the Senate. Is that right? That's right. I did read Chuck Schumer claimed in an interview the other day that he was going to bring it up for a vote or he was going to bring something like it up to a vote. What happened was they passed safe banking and they also passed the Moore Act. So, but the Senate has not even voted on either one of those two things. So they have to combine the two. They're going to try to put the two together into one law instead of voting separately on them. I think is what Schumer's going to try to do. Um, do, you, do you happen to know? Does that does it require a supermajority or just no a, a majority? Nope. But the, then Biden has to sign it, of course, not veto it. But no, it doesn't. I guess could somebody filibuster it? That's a good question. But it, and if it does pass, so that would decriminalize it. It would yeah, it would remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act. Now, I don't think it provides a framework for the industry or for legalization, but mm -hmm. it says that's what comes next. So they couldn't do that and get it passed. But the social equity provisions are in there, too. There's money in there that goes to social equity, and there's provisions in there that go to social justice, like the expungement. From that point of view, uh, the MORE Act's uh, really good. And yeah, it immediately decriminalizes um, cannabis. But in terms of how we legalize it, it doesn't quite do that. There's going to have to. Yeah, let's say, uh, you know, another example, another very tangible example of why the, you know, Georgia Senate runoff race 
was so critical, right? Oh, yes. And I was very pleased with that outcome and surprised. A lot of people asked me if I thought the Democrats were going to win those seats. And I said, no. But I was pleasantly surprised that mm -hmm. to, I was thrilled to be wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And so, yeah. And still getting the 50 votes is going to be hard for cannabis, anything cannabis, because it only takes mm -hmm. one senator. It doesn't one Democratic senator to hold the whole thing hostage. And whether it be cannabis or COVID-19 relief, that the, all 50 of those Democratic senators are salivating at the power that they now hold. Mm -hmm. Each one of them now has tremendous power for anything because they uh, Biden can't do anything without all 50 of them. Um, so the, again, the mechanics and operations of this activism is complicated. But if Schumer brings it to a vote, we'll have a vote. And it's the first vote we'll ever have had since the 1937 Tax Act. That's, it's a starting point, at least. Yeah, it, it sometimes politics, you have to win with symbolism first, and then you win with operationalizing the symbolism. <laughs> uh, and those, both of those things are hard because sometimes you'll win the symbol, symbolism, but you'll lose the other. Um, mm -hmm. Or sometimes maybe you're not so good at the symbolism, but you crush it on the ops. If we look at different struggles, LGBTQ rights and so forth as models, we see that you can't be complacent, have to stay vigilant um, and stay on it because things can go backwards. Things can go backwards. We, we've seen that recently. I, I want to jump back to, to Harborside for a second. You know, the dispensary that you said you opened in, I think it was 04, 05. And this was when it was just medically legalized in California. You, you operated, I think it's interesting, you, you've been an activist, but you were also like an actual operator during much of this time. And I'm, I'm curious what that was like, where it was, you're still operating in this bit of a gray area for more than 10 years or so before it actually became legalized for adult use. Can you, can you just talk about that, maybe just from a business perspective, like how the business grew or survived during that time period? Yes. I became an activist so that I could do legal cannabis business. I, I started selling weed when I was 15 in high school, and I loved the thrill of that, but I didn't love the criminality of it. And it's just as my brother and I got more successful in the cannabis trade, it became more dangerous. And my day-to-day -day fear of getting busted, and in fact, did get busted, um, my brother worse than me, but that was never a pleasant experience. So you become an activist to change the laws, to get rid of that. Um, and Can you talk about that specific experience when you were busted? Oh, um, um, I, the, the, we've had, I think, four busts in our lives between me and my brother, two each. He's had one major one, the other three were more minor. But my first, one of my earliest memories on this journey was going to visit my brother in prison when I was nine and he was 18, 19 years old. And he was wow. in for a small amount of weed that he got caught Dulles Airport with. And they locked you up, even if you were white <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. in those days. And so he, I don't know, he did five or six months. He probably would have done a lot longer if he had, was not white. And and then I my first bust happened in Belize of all places when I was on vacation and I let my guard down a little bit and did something stupid and got caught with just, again, at just a few grams of cannabis. They took pity on me and charged me 
took all my credit cards, maxed out the charge on each one, and then told me to leave the country. Oh. Um, so that's how I had to pay some hefty fine, like $20,000 in fine oh to get out of Belize in the mid-90s. Um, but I, but the, I was actually had a five-year suspended sentence from the judge in Belize, so I was quite grateful that, that he suspended the sentence. Mm -hmm. um, again, the color of my skin probably played a huge role in that and the fact that I was an American tourist, not a Belizean. And then my brother took a big bust a few years after that, many hundreds of pounds. And that was the one that was super devastating that, that really disrupted my family. My parents were already in their 60s or 70s when that happened. And, you know, that, that bankrupted us, destroyed us. Um, and the darkest period of my life was the five or so years after that we managed to I, and then short during that five-year period and he was in prison that that whole time or uh, no he was in prison for a little while but we he got out on probation and mm -hmm. and we managed to get the probation moved to california he had a couple co-defendants in his case die actually in the course of the case so it wow. it, it disrupted the prosecutor's case and so my brother was able to cut a deal that was that 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 was still pretty intense again this is somebody who should have never been busted in the first place but better than than many other people facing similar situations mm -hmm. um, and then i had a small bust in california half a pound of weed a uh, few years after he did but it, the case was dropped because i had my medical credentials and the cop was just overzealous it was it was still new. The cops were not used to people having patient collectives and being patients. And, um, mm. and, um, they decided to arrest me and let the prosecutors figure it out. And then the prosecutor dropped the case. I still had to go to jail. I still had to spend a few days in jail. I still had to bail myself out. That was still cost a huge amount of money. I think my bail was set at $60,000 for half a pound of wheat, eight ounces of wheat for somebody who'd never been busted before in the United States at least for anything. And, and it was $60,000 uh, bond. And that was, if not for my family, uh, I, I, that, yeah. and I had to sit in jail for a little while to, 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 to get that together. So, and, and you don't get the money, m bail money when they drop the case and you don't get all the disruption and stress from being locked up back. Um, and yeah. when was this in time relative to starting Harborside? Five or so years. Yeah, it was, it was my, I think my brother's bus was like 01. We opened in 06. So that five-year period is a very long five years, Trey, let me tell you that, where every day feels like you're going to die and you have no idea how you're going to survive to the following day. Um, so you do that for five years, but you just grind it out. We're resilient people. We had the support of our parents. My mom sold her house to finance Harborside. I mean, it was a Hail Mary. Harborside was a Hail Mary for us and our family. We sold my mom's house and, and used the money to open Harborside. And, and my brother led all that. It was my brother who was the leader of that. I certainly helped a lot. My brother dug himself out of that terrible situation with a lot of, I'm very proud of him. He did an amazing job. And, and together we were able to create the Harborside opportunity and experience. And the rest is history, as they say, or hipstery, <laughs> as I say, we like to say. And so now I want to help as many people with similar backgrounds do the same thing. That's one of the missions in life right now. 
And so what happened with that business? I understand you're no longer involved or you exited yeah, the business? Well, Harborside is now a publicly traded cannabis company on the Canadian Stock Exchange. Our wow. journey, when that happens, you have to exit your company because a whole bunch of people are investing money in it and they want people who have run public companies to, to run your public company. And we've never, we had never taken a company public before. And, uh, you know, we, we exited and the exit, unfortunately, didn't go so well for us because the public markets collapsed shortly after um, oh, no. in Canada. They're starting to slowly recover now, but that was two years ago now that we did that. And it just so the exit ended up being a <laughs> more of an unemployment event than an exit. But it's OK. Now I'm consulting and, and I do strategic advice and I help social equity folks pro bono and I'm part of a couple of consulting firms and, and it's a lot of fun to build the industry all over. I've got clients all over the country, all over the world. I'm helping them build their businesses. In some cases, it's people of color I'm helping. And it's very gratifying to work on more than just one company. I mm -hmm. worked on one company for 14 years and wow, it was one of the probably the greatest experiences of my career so far was Harborside, but I'm now really excited to be more broad in, in what I'm doing and applying all that experience. I'm one of the few people who had success in quote unquote underground market and the medical market and the adult use market. And so I, I just, I just want to leverage, I guess you could say all that to help build the, the global cannabis industry. We mentioned Mexico a minute ago. I'm very definitely hungry to do work in Mexico. They're, I think they're going to have a provision in the law that, that gives licenses and opportunities to indigenous folks in Mexico and being able to help some of those communities get into the industry and, and provide for their communities and families is, is another thing I'm passionate about right now too. That's great. So as a consultant and advisor, to a lot of these companies. Is there anything that you're seeing that you're particularly excited about from like an innovation standpoint? Or is it whether it's how people are sourcing things, their supply chain, what they're doing in the retail side? What do you think is interesting right now that very few people are doing, but you're starting to see some early signs of? One big trend here in California is a, what's called nano emulsion technology. And that allows you to put cannabinoids with this technology into a drink, say, and the onset, instead of being 30 minutes to 90 minutes, which is typical of a cannabis edible, would be more like five to 15 minutes. And these drinks are starting to hit the shelves of dispensaries in California. I've, there's you know, certainly one group that's licensing that, this technology that is working. The technology works, at least there's one group doing it. I've had a bunch of their products and it's working. Um, you, the onset really is 15 minutes. And so this could open up a lot of new consumption model, community consumption model possibilities. One of the constraints is the long onset and offset of cannabis is mm -hmm. how do you create a consumption model around that? But with the nano emulsion technology, I think we might crack the code. Another trend that is, is happening Unfortunately, not with the big companies yet, but with the small companies, if you can believe it or not, mm -hmm. is uh, environmental sustainability. So if you imagine 
the vape pen cartridge or the package that your joint comes in when you buy it at the dispensary, multiply that packaging and that cartridge by the billions. Mm -hmm. And then imagine that piled up in your backyard. We got a problem and we have to fix it. <laughs> and it's not just our problem, of course, if you try to order sustainable packaging, it's not easy. Um, especially if you're a big company and you have millions of units of packaging, but it can be done. And if a small hippie commune that's got a small micro license in California can have sustainable packaging, so can the big companies. And so I'm starting to see the small hippie commune <laughs> micro licenses have sustainable packaging, whether it be the glass or the ocean plastic or the pen. Yeah. In some places, hemp plastic. Uh, there's a great, there, there's some, some hemp packaging companies now that you can buy hemp plastic packaging for your cannabis products from. And so that trend, I'm very excited about. And um, I think it, it's got a huge future. The, the other consumer trend that I mentioned a second ago is consumption models and hospitality models. Mm -hmm. Very early in that space because it's hard enough to get a community to allow you to have a dispensary, let alone a consumption space, but it's starting to happen. You have Palm Springs is doing this in California. You had some early machinations of this in West Hollywood was doing it before the pandemic happened. They were going for about six months or a year on it. You've seen this. Massachusetts is thinking about licensing this. Illinois is thinking about licensing this. Can you describe that experience a little bit, what that might be like? Sure. Imagine a motel that you go to. Right now, if you go to a motel, whether you're traveling cross country or going to Yosemite or you're uh, on a family trip or whatever, motel, hotel, resort, whatever it is, you can't smoke weed there. Can't buy weed there. Can't have a weed drink there. Your bed sheets aren't made out of hemp. Your carpeting isn't made out of hemp. All of these integrations can be done. You're, we're starting to see it in very small models. There are these wonderful wellness retreats, cannabis wellness retreats in California now. Again, pre-pandemic and, and soon, hope, hopefully, post-pandemic. And you can go spend a weekend on a, on a cannabis farm and get massages and eat organic food and, and have a meditation teacher come over and you can have a whole Cali Sober experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and, um, and so those models are, are just starting, uh, to emerge and I'm excited about those. It's all about integrating this, this compound or any plant medicine compound into society. How do we do it? How can we be good stewards of this? How can we empower people and make them well, but, but reduce the harm? So that's some of the things uh, that I'm seeing trending right now. Do you still get an opportunity to work with your brother at all? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, we're mostly working on creative projects. Of course, my brother is a co-founder of Last Prisoner Project. We have a lot of creative storytelling projects we work on together. We have some cannabis hospitality projects that we're baking in the oven right now. Not quite, oh, ready, cool. and not quite ready for the world, but, but, but working on it. And yeah, and then we're both consultants with Global Go Consulting, which is an international cannabis consulting firm out of California here. So we work together in that capacity. 
Um, but you know, we're, we're neither one of us is super eager to start another cannabis company and run it on the day to day right mm -hmm. now that might happen again, but I think we're still in our post harborside pause from jumping in and, and, and doing something like that. Uh, what we really want to do is get paid to tell cannabis stories. I've been trained as an actor and, and, and that, that was my first love got bit by a theater bug right around the same time I got bit by the cannabis bug. But, and so we would love to just be the, the content creators, uh, cannabis content creators for the likes of Netflix and Hulu and, and, and the world. And I'm sure we're the only people on earth who harbor such dreams, but nevertheless, that's, so we have a lot of content projects circulating right now, looking for a home. So you get, have you, have you made some movies that, you're trying to well, get made, like I or? CBD Nation was a documentary that was released this summer. Yeah, we both, Steve and I both worked on that. Our production company was one of the producers on that. And we have a few other ideas that haven't gotten funded yet. And most of them are nowadays, it's all about docu-series or some kind of series, streaming and series. So we're entertaining a lot more ideas like that. We also have some movies a movie script we've been working on for a number of years now and it's gone through a few places there's been a few groups in hollywood that have helped us on it and it's a very hard thing to do it's a very hard thing to get funded and get done it was very hard to get harborside funded and done and it was very hard to get last prisoner project funded and done so it's just another thing to to work on but we've lived this for so long we feel like we can tell the stories because we've lived them. Absolutely. You've accomplished so much in this space, it sounds like, and, and have your hands in, in so many different things. I think it's great. It's really impressive what you've done. Thanks, Trey. appreciate that. <laughs> is, there, is there somewhere where, where folks can go to find out more about what you're up to? Yes. You, my website, andrewdangelo.com is my personal website. I'm all over LinkedIn, Twitter, IG and uh, very easy to find, very easy to get a hold of. And I'm also pretty responsive to just about everybody. So don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Andrew. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a lot of fun, Trey. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode or know of anyone who might benefit from hearing it, please subscribe and share. You can also sign up for the Mind Things newsletter at mindthings.co and find us on Twitter at mindthingsco. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode very soon.